Hello, my name's John. I'm your host on Search for Truth. So a warm welcome and thanks for tuning in. We've the final talk today in our series called Nothing But Christ Crucified. Brian, our Bible teacher, has been looking into the issues and practices of the early church as recorded by the Apostle Paul in his first letter to the church in Corinth. Today, Brian turns his attention to the final chapter of 1 Corinthians and he's called the talk The Ultimate Test of Christianity. It's a glorious conclusion. So, over to Brian. Thanks, John. Yes, we do come to our final study in Paul's first letter, which he addressed to the Corinthians, that is, to the Christian believers in the Church of God at Corinth. We're grateful to Paul for the following brief but powerful summary of the essential content of the Christian gospel, that is, the good news which Christianity offers. It's focused precisely on what God has done for us in Jesus Christ his Son, and that chiefly through the cross. It's this... Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you were saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, After that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Here the Apostle Paul informs them that they'll be saved by the message of Christianity which he'd preached to them. The sense of the condition he mentions is not to doubt that they were maintaining a basic belief in Christianity, but Paul does allow himself here to explore whether such a faith commitment on their part might ultimately prove to be ineffective because the actual doctrine of Christ's resurrection was in fact false. Was that possible? Paul now explores that very possibility in his next words to them, which form a tightly reasoned defence of the factual truth of the gospel, which he so concisely outlined in his opening words of chapter 15. This is it from verse 12 onwards. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. What Paul states here is that the entire case for Christianity rests on the claim that Christ has been bodily resurrected. There are those today who profess to represent a Christian perspective while denying this. This could be a perfect description of Jim Rigby, who pastors St Andrew's Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. Two days before Christmas, Rigby celebrated the holiday by saying, I don't literally believe the cadaver of Jesus got up again. But I do believe the resurrection actually happened when the disciples began to see Christ in each other and in everyone else as well. You have to wonder if they've ever read this part of the Bible. 
If they have, they have tragically missed the point and committed a colossal blunder. The whole of Christianity is pointless if Christ is still dead and buried. The hope offered through the Christian message depends 100% on the objective, historical fact of the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead with the new body in which he presented himself to all the witnesses referred to earlier in defence of the reality of Christ's resurrection. Most, Paul says, were still alive, inviting doubters to interrogate them so as to be convinced. Paul even supplies some names of chief witnesses, including himself. His own dramatic case was perhaps the most powerful of all, since it's inconceivable that anything other than the indisputable evidence for the risen Christ could ever have totally turned Paul's life around. What Paul doesn't add here is that even Christ's enemies had conceded the fact that his tomb was empty something they could not account for other than to spread a deliberate lie, one they didn't even bother to continue to promote. As Lord Darling, a former Lord Chief Justice of England in the earlier part of the 20th century, once said, there exists such overwhelming evidence, positive and negative, factual and circumstantial, that no intelligent jury in the world could fail to bring in the verdict that the resurrection story is true. Having established and so strongly undergirded the Christian faith at this unique critical point, Paul now shows what follows from such a well-founded belief in Christ's resurrection. He says from verse 20, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, It is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. This is a brilliantly concise summary of future events, which Paul expands on elsewhere throughout his writings. The thing Christian believers can expect to happen next, based on the evidence found in such texts of the Bible, is the soon return of Jesus Christ, even though we don't know when, but are simply to live in the expectation that it can be at any time. At that time of their Lord's return to the air, there will be a resurrection of all believers of this present age who have died in faith in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 omits any reference to the period of at least seven years which follows that of which the Lord himself spoke in Matthew's Gospel, chapters 24 and 25. Verse 24 of this chapter, the 15th of Corinthians, immediately next mentions our Lord's return to the earth when he will liberate Jerusalem and reward faithful Jews with access into his 1,000-year kingdom. He will reign But only after that glorious time on the present earth will death itself, the final enemy, be abolished. 
This we can read about in Revelation chapter 20, which describes the ultimate judgment of God when seated on a great white throne. Then death is thrown into the lake of fire, the final and eternal destiny of all who willfully reject Christ as Saviour. But this talk of being raised for judgment begged the question, and that question is asked from verse 35, How are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? You fool, Paul says, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and that which you sow you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, and another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonour, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also is it written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. These verses are wonderfully suited to a Christian burial service. There's so much that could be said, but little time left for us to say it, so we must limit ourselves to a couple of points only. First, this is a basis for Christian burial, as opposed to cremation, as a way of disposing of the body. The expressive language used here is of sowing the body into the ground, for it's this act that expresses hope in a resurrection harvest. Also, there's a real indication here that our wonderfully transformed body will permit us to recognise one another. After all, Paul says, you reap what you sow. And Paul strengthens the case by talking of the stars differing from each other in glory. It's a wonderful conclusion to think of those with such Christian insight as defined in this chapter, shining brightly forever like the stars in the expanse of heaven.
must remind you that this is your final opportunity to send for the booklet to accompany this series. Um, it's very useful in that it gives Bible references and sources so that you can pursue further study if you wish. And the book is a good read by itself, so well worth having. Now, if you'd like a copy, please write in, making sure to let us have your own address, and ask for the title, Nothing But Christ Crucified. You can order by email or by post. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wotton Bassett, Swindon, SN4, 8DY, UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. Now, you might be interested to know that many titles of Search for Truth transcript booklets have been turned into e-books and are available at amazon.co.uk forward slash kindle hyphen e-books. Just type Search for Truth series into the search box and you should find them. Any difficulty, then put in the author's name as well. Also, look out for Search for Truth featuring on www.twr360.org and this is another way of accessing again what you've heard here on air. So, now we've come to the end of today's programme and the end of this series. Many thanks for your company if you've been following the last three months or so. And next week, Brian begins a shorter series of seven talks called Basic Bible Truths something we can all benefit from no matter how long we've been on our Christian journey. So I hope you can join us. Until next week then, very best wishes from Bible teacher Brian and David and our singers and me, John. So cheerio and may God richly bless you. Amen.